Chapter Six of Shakespeare: Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalenda. Shakespeare: Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce. Chapter Six: Taverns, Theaters, Variegated Society. Man's evil manners live in brass, their virtues we write in water. The Boar's Head Tavern in Eastchip was one of the oldest and best inns in London for free and easy rollicking mood, where prince and peasant, king or clown, papist or puritan were welcome night and day, provided they intended no wrong and kept good nature aglow even in their cups. Magistrate and convent prior would sometimes raid the tavern until their physical and financial wants were satisfied. Dame Quickly, with ruffled collar, was the master spirit of the house, and had been its light and glory for thirty years. Her round full face, fat neck, and robust form was a constant invitation for good cheer, and her matchless wit was a marvel to the guests that nightly congregated through her three-story gabled stone monastery. A tavern is the best picture of human folly, nature wearing no garb of hypocrisy. You must know that the Boar's Head had once been the home of the Blackfriars, then a residence of a bishop, a convent, a brewery, and finally fell into the hands of the grandfather of Dame Quickly, who bequeathed it to his posterity and the public as a depot for plum pudding, roast beef, lamb, birds, fish, ale, wine, brandy, and universal pleasure. A Boar's Head with a red light in its mouth was kept constantly burning from sunset to sunrise, where wandering humanity found welcome and rest. Supper-parties from the adjacent theatres filled the tavern in midnight hours, where actors, authors, politicians, statesmen, and ladies of all hue reveled in jolly, generous freedom beneath the ever-present superintendence of buxom Dame Quickly. The gods are just, and oft our pleasant vices make instruments to scourge us. Boys, immature in knowledge, pawn their experience to their present pleasure. The main bar, decorated with variegated lights and shining blue bottles and glasses, with pewter and silver mugs in theatrical rows, lent a kind of enchantment to the nightly scene. Round, square, and octagonal oak tables were scattered through the various rooms, and rough leather lounges skirted the walls. Promptly at eight o'clock William and myself passed the stony portals of the Boar's Head, and were ushered into the background-floor dining-room where we met our friend Fields and a playwright named Christopher Marlowe standing before a great open chimney with a blazing fire and a splendid supper. Fields seemed to take great pride in making us acquainted with Marlowe, the greatest actor and dramatist of his day, whose plays were even then the talk and delight of London. Tamburlaine the Great and Dr. Faustus had been successfully launched at the Blackfires, and young Marlowe was in his glory, the wit and toast of the town. He was but twenty-five years of age, finely formed, a voluptuary, high-jutting forehead, dark hazel eye, and a typical image of a bohemian poet. It was a toss-up as to who was the handsomest man, William or Marlowe, yet a stranger on close inspection could see glinting out of William's eye a divine light and flashing expression that ever commanded respect and admiration. He was unlike any other mortal. I alone at that period knew the bursting ability of William and that his granary of knowledge was full to the brim, needing only an opportunity to flood the world with immortal sonnets, Venus and Adonis, and the incubating passion plays that lay struggling in his burning brain for universal recognition. 
During the evening young actors, politicians, college students, and roistering lords filled the house, and by twelve o'clock Bacchanalian and folly ruled the madcaps of the town, while battered Venus with bedraggled hair and skirts languished in sensuous display. Field requested his friend Marlowe to recite a few lines from Dr. Faustus for our instruction and pleasure, and forthwith he gave the soliloquy of Faust, waiting at midnight for Lucifer to carry him to hell, the terrified doctor exclaiming to the devil, O oh mercy, heaven look not so fierce on me, adders and serpents let me breathe a while, ugly hell, gape not, come not, Lucifer, I'll burn my books, O oh, Mephistopheles! And then, mellowing his sonorous voice, gives thus his classical apostrophe to Helen of Greece. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Her lips suck forth my soul, see where it flies. Come, Helen, come, give me my soul again. Here will I dwell, for heaven is in these lips, and all is dross that is not Helena. Oh, thou art fairer than the evening air, clad in the beauty of a thousand stars. Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter, when he appeared to hapless Semele. More lovely than the monarch of the sky, in wanton Arethusa's azure arms, and none but thou shalt be my paramour. A loud round of applause greeted the rendition of the classical poem, not only at our own table, but through the entire hall and adjacent rooms. At a table not far away sat a number of illustrious gentlemen, favorites of Queen Elizabeth and greatly admired by the people. There sat Sir Walter Raleigh, lately returned from discoveries in America, Francis Bacon, Attorney General to the Crown, Earl Essex, the court favorite, Lord Southampton, the gayest in the realm, with young Burley, Cecil, and Leicester making night melodious with their songs, speeches, and tinkling silver wine-cups. The young lords insisted that we give another recitation, pictorial of love and passion. Marlowe declined to say more, but knowing that William had hatched out his crude verses of Venus and Adonis, I insisted that he deliver a few stanzas for the enthusiastic audience, particularly describing the passionate pleadings of Venus to the stallion Adonis. Without hesitation, trepidation, or excuse, William arose in manly attitude and drew a picture of beautiful Venus. Sometimes she shakes her head and then his hand. Now gazeth she on him, now on the ground. Sometimes her arms enfold him like a band. She would, he will not in her arms be bound. And when from thence he struggles to be gone, she locks her lily fingers one in one. Fondling, she saith, since I have hemmed thee here within the circuit of this ivory pale, I'll be a park, and thou shalt be my dear. Feed where thou wilt on mountain or in dale, graze on my lips, and if those hills be dry, stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie. Within this limit is relief enough, sweet bottom grass and high delightful plain, round rising hillocks break obscure and rough to shelter thee from tempest and from rain. Then be my dear, since I am such a park, no dog shall rouse thee, though a thousand bark. When he dropped in his chair the revellers went wild with enthusiasm, and Marlowe and Southampton wished to know where the Stratford boy got the poem. William smiled, tapped his forehead, and tossed off a bumper of brandy to the cheers that still demanded more mental food. But as it was two by the clock, our friend Field suggested that we retire, when Marlowe and himself took us in a carriage to the Devil Tavern, where we slept off our first spree in London. O thou invisible spirit of wine, if thou hast no name to be known by, let us call thee Devil. 
We arose the next morning a little groggy, and William had a shade of melancholy remorse flash over his usually bright countenance. He abstractly remarked, "'Well, Jack, we are making a fine start for fame and fortune. The stride we took last night at the Boar's Head will soon land us in Newgate or Parliament.' I replied that it made little difference to intellectual artists whether they served their country in prison or in Parliament, for many a man was in Newgate who might honour Parliament, and many secret scoundrels who had not been caught should be inmates of Newgate or if equal justice prevailed, their bodies be dangling on the heights of Tyburn. A Daniel come to judgment, yea, a Daniel. O wise young judge, how do I honour thee? Poise the cause in justice equal scales, whose beam stands sure. It was ten o'clock when we stretched our weary legs under the breakfast-table of Meg Mullen, who had prepared for us a quartet of fat mutton-chops with salt pork, baked potatoes, a huge omelette, and a boiling pot of black tea sent, as she said, by the Emperor of China for the guests of the Boar's Head Tavern. Meg was a jolly wench, and garnished her food with pleasant words and witty quips, believing that love and laughter aided digestion and cheered the traveller in his journey of life. I reminded William that he had a business engagement with the great theatrical monarch, Richard Burbage, at noon at the Black Friars. The bard was ready for a stroll, and after brushing our clothes and smiling at the variegated guests, we sauntered into the street toward the Thames, and soon found the entrance to the renowned Blackfriars Theatre. A call-boy ushered us into the presence of the great actor and manager, who greeted us with a snappish, "'Good morning!' A number of authors and actors were waiting their turn to see the Prince of Players, whose signet of approval or disapproval finished their expectations. It was Saturday, and payday. Turning abruptly to William, the proprietor said, "'I understand you know something about theatres and acting?' Try me, you shall be my judge. Then, sir, from this hour you are appointed assistant property man and assistant prompter for the Blackfriars at sixteen shillings a week, with chance of promotion if you deserve it. Your business hours shall be from noon every weekday until five o'clock, and from eight o'clock in the night until eleven o'clock, when you are at liberty until the next day. Do you accept the work? William promptly replied, I accept with immeasurable thanks, and like Caesar of old I crossed the dramatic Rubicon. The bard was then introduced to Bull Billings, the chief property man and prompter, who at once initiated William into the machinery secrets of the stage, with its scenes, ropes, chains, masks, moons, gods, swords, bucklers, guns, pikes, torches, wheels, chairs, thrones, giants, wigs, hats, bonnets, robes, brass jewels, kings, queens, dukes, lords, and all the other paraphernalia of dramatic exhibition. William was now launched upon the ocean of theatrical suns and storms, with nature for his guide, and everlasting glory for his name. Lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. End of chapter 6 Recording by Kalinda in Lüneburg, Germany, on February 22, 2009.